Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. It's good to be here with you. I hope you're looking forward to our study in Daniel 9. It's a rich text, one of the most important sections of prophecy in the Word of God. Here's the plan. We're going to slow down and break the rest of Daniel 9 into three studies. This is part one. Bible's open to Daniel 9. We pick up this amazing text with verse 20. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. The Apostle Peter warned in Second Peter 3 that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts saying, where is the promise of his coming? Part of the fuel that feeds the fire of those who mock the thought of the return of Christ is the great litany of men who have stood on the pages of church history offering up warnings and dates of when Christ will return. Here's a quote. The last days are upon us. Weigh carefully the times. Look for him who is above all time, eternal and invisible. Now defined correctly, I don't have... Too much of a problem with that one. That statement, though, wasn't made in recent times. It was made by a Christian named Ignatius, said to be a disciple of the Apostle John, who lived just a few decades after the epistles of John were first written. Here's another quote. There is no doubt that the Antichrist has already been born. Firmly established in his early years, he will, after reaching maturity, achieve supreme power. But think of that quote. No doubt that the Antichrist has already been born. This statement was made by a Christian leader named Martin living in 375 A.D. In the year 235 A.D., a church leader named Hippolytus predicted that Christ was sure to return by 500 A.D. Many of you probably remember the big scare around Y2K, and it was thought that when the year 2000 hit, the computers wouldn't be able to handle it. Massive breakdown of order would follow, and Christian ministries like Focus on the Family warned about people being prepared. This same type of panic came at the end of the first millennium. In the years between 999 and 1030 AD, Christians were so convinced that Christ would return that it led to social chaos. Farmers didn't plant crops for the next year. Buildings weren't repaired. Things were neglected because why bother when they believed that Jesus Christ would return in their lifetime? Think of it. Would you go to work 
mow the yard or clean the house if you absolutely knew that the Lord would return in a month or a year. In the 1500s, Protestant reformer Martin Luther said, quote, We have reached the time of the white horse of the apocalypse. This world will not last any longer than another hundred years. Christopher Columbus said he was sure the world would end by 1656. The year 1666 saw such an explosion in end-time speculation that one pastor wrote in his journal every time a storm hit, people would go to church to await Christ's second coming. We've mentioned before the origins of the Seventh-day Adventists started with a man named William Miller in the 1800s who said at that time, I am fully convinced that somewhere between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844, Christ will come. When William Miller's dates came and went, great numbers of people walked away from anything to do with the Bible or what we would consider the Christian faith. Because if this man they followed was wrong about that, what else was he wrong about? Our own generation stands guilty. Many predicted 1981 would mark the rapture of the church in the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. Then there was the book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And so we come to Daniel 9 with a word of caution. Over the last 2,000 years of church history, many sincere and smart people have predicted and believed that the end-time events predicted in Daniel 9 would happen in their lifetime, and every single one of them has been wrong. Every time the earth shakes, believers jump to Matthew 24-7 and the prediction of earthquakes. Don't interpret the Bible through the lens of current events. Interpret current events through the lens of the Bible. And so the task before us is to heed the warnings of those who have gone before, not adding to the text, but examining carefully the words, the context, and the meaning inherent in the text itself, and living lives that are always ready for the return of Christ, whether it comes in our lifetime or not. In our last couple of studies in Daniel, we saw that Daniel poured his heart out to the Lord. And now we see in Daniel 9 that the Lord answered in a way that Daniel would have never expected. Verse 20 in your text. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God. Verse 20 summarizes for us the first 19 verses of the chapter. This was Daniel's prayer for his people, and in verse 20, Daniel was still in prayer. Notice the text. Daniel was speaking, praying, confessing his sins and the sins of his people, Israel. I like the fact that it was not just the sins of the nation. Daniel confessed his own sin. Israel, God's people in that dispensation, as ambassadors to the world. Today, it is the church that God has chosen to use. God is not done with Israel. Romans 9, 10, and 11 make this a settled issue. But today, the church is on center stage. Not the United States, not a denomination, the church, the body of Christ. Supplication in verse 20, Daniel took his request before the Lord. But focus in on the end of the verse. Daniel was praying for the holy mountain of my God. The holy mountain of my God. Jerusalem was where the temple had stood, and Jerusalem was supposed to be the center of all worship of God. This is a reference to Mount Moriah, where the temple had stood. The temple 
was destroyed, Jerusalem in ruins, the people in captivity, and Daniel was seeking for God to rebuild his temple in order that God would be glorified. His prayer was for God to be glorified by his people once again. Now, verse 21 is fascinating. Read it again with me. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. Notice the words, the man, Gabriel. Flip back, if you can, to chapter 8 with me. In chapter 8, verse 15, Gabriel first appeared to Daniel. Take a look at the wording, verse 15. Then it happened, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. Gabriel had the appearance of a man. So back in chapter 9, again, Gabriel came with the appearance of a man. Daniel even refers back in the middle of verse 21 to seeing Gabriel before. Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning. Gabriel is a servant of Yahweh and appeared to Daniel as a man. Now, I want you to consider the ministry of the angels. We don't often talk about them, but they have a very real purpose in the program of God. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 1.14 that they are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. We need them. Why? Because of the fall of Satan. Because of the fall of those that followed Satan. Remember the teaching of Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's a battle raging, and God often uses angels to answer our prayers. We should not focus on them, and most of the time we can't see them, but that does not make their ministry any less real. In Acts 10, when Cornelius prayed, God let him see the angel who was sent with his answer. In Acts 12, when the church prayed for Peter, an angel came to unlock his prison doors. And so it was with Daniel. He prayed, and an angel came with the answered prayer. But at the end of verse 21, notice it's not something that you read every day being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. Verse 23 is going to teach us that before Daniel even finished a prayer, God responded to Daniel through the angel Gabriel. This builds my confidence in knowing that the prayers of the righteous man do not fall on deaf ears. Take comfort from this. Take hope from this. Draw strength from the fact that God hears your prayers immediately. There is no delay. But here's a part of Daniel 9 that you do not want to miss. You need to understand this. Remember back to our first study in chapter 9, we saw that Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah. Daniel had been in captivity for about 66 or 67 years. He was praying to the Lord about the 70 years of captivity. Daniel wanted to see the Hebrew people who were in captivity for almost 70 years, just as been prophesied in Jeremiah, Daniel wanted to see the Hebrew people allowed to return to Jerusalem. He wanted to see the city rebuilt, the temple rebuilt, and the Hebrew people worshiping God in Jerusalem again. But the Lord responded with the unexpected. Unexpected, yes, because Gabriel showed up, but more 
because the revelation contained in the rest of this chapter, it spans the ages. Daniel believed in the prophecy contained in Jeremiah, but he also received new revelation from God, a new prophetic message. It speaks of the Messiah. It speaks of the first advent of Christ. It speaks of the second advent of Christ. Yes, the people would be allowed to go back, but that was just the beginning of what would come. Because God had a plan not just to deliver the people from Babylon, he had a plan to deliver his people from the bondage to sin. And sin was the problem. It was their problem then, and it is our problem now. That's why Israel fell as a nation. That's why the southern tribes were hauled off to Babylon. Good old-fashioned sin. Daniel was worried about their enslavement to Babylon, and the Lord responded by revealing how he planned to deal with mankind's enslavement to sin. Listen, one of the principles that really helps us to understand Daniel 9 is to recognize that God was telling Daniel through the angel Gabriel that Israel had two problems, not just one. The enslavement to sin would be solved through the death of Christ on the cross at the first coming of the Messiah and the release from the oppression of men would come at Christ's second coming. This is what Israel is still waiting for. And this is fundamental to understanding our text moving forward, so let me repeat it. The enslavement to sin would be taken care of at the first coming of Jesus Christ, and the enslavement to man will be taken care of at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we are about to see, God's answer to Daniel's prayer centers on a period of time known as 70 weeks. Before we move on, notice the very end of verse 21. Daniel tells us that Gabriel came to him about the time of the evening offering. This is remarkable because it gives us insight into the thought process of Daniel. With the temple destroyed, no sacrifice had been offered in Jerusalem for 50 years. Daniel had been in captivity his entire adult life, and yet we see Daniel continue to be faithful. He was mindful, his thoughts centered on the proper worship of his God. On our watches, it was now 3 p.m., the same time of day when Christ died on the cross. Daniel, in his old age, was thinking back to the days when he was just a young man, seeing the smoke rise from the temple in the late afternoon from the evening offering, as a reminder that God accepts sinful people because of a sacrifice offered on their behalf. It was a lamb without blemish that would be offered in the temple. This was the perfect picture of the spotless lamb of God who died upon the cross. The evening offering pointed to the cross and the prophetic message given points to the cross. It was no accident that the angel of God arrived when he did. Verse 22 in your text. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter, and understand the vision. In verse 22, we find out that Gabriel had come to tell Daniel God's future plans for the nation of Israel. God was assuring Daniel of his commitment to Israel, including their future restoration. Notice the wording in verse 23. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. The command was given when Daniel started to pray. I have come. Now, this wasn't a vision. I know that most translations use that word, that this was a vision. 
But Daniel wasn't seeing Gabriel in a vision. Daniel was in his upper room praying, and Gabriel actually came to him. When we see the word vision in the book of Daniel, you know, we tend to automatically assume that it's referring to a prophetic vision. But this wasn't a dream, and this wasn't a vision. The idea here with the word vision is of an appearance. Gabriel appeared to Daniel. Understand why I have come, why I have appeared to you, he was telling Daniel. It's been famously said that God trusts us with his silence, meaning God has confidence in us that as believers, we will continue to walk according to his word, even when we don't witness a direct answer to prayer. But imagine life for Daniel with this type of direct intervention by God. Gabriel tells him Daniel was greatly loved, one counted precious to God, a beautiful commentary of God's love for this humble servant. Understand, consider the matter, Daniel. What we have before us was not a vision that required interpreting, and what I hope to show you over the coming studies is that this was a plain statement of coming events. It was everyday language that was clear and direct. It could be understood by Daniel. It can be understood by us. It should be understood by us. Try to put it into perspective. Try to think of it from Daniel's point of view. Jeremiah's prophecy showed God's plan for Israel during the 70 years of captivity in Babylon. The visions he had received in chapter 7 and 8 showed the Gentile nations that would arise. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then the Roman Empire. Most of the revelation already given to Daniel dealt with the Gentile nations, but Gabriel was about to give to Daniel insight into God's prophetic plan for his people, his nation, Israel. God would keep his word. Israel will be restored and the kingdom of God will be established on earth. Daniel prayed for God to restore his people. Daniel prayed for God to deliver Israel from the nations. God sent Gabriel to answer Daniel's prayer, to let him know that, yes, these things would happen, but the timing was not what Daniel would expect. God was eager to answer Daniel's prayer because this was a man who walked by faith. Like David, this was a man after God's own heart. Like the apostle John, this was a disciple greatly loved by God. Think of this. Gabriel stands in the very presence of God, instructed to leave heaven, to tell Daniel that he was precious to God. He may have looked like an old man to some, but to God, Daniel was precious. I'll take that any day. Verse 24, here comes the heart of this text. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Our translation start verse 24 with 70 weeks, literally 77s. Our goal as we walk through this is to add nothing to the word and to allow the word to speak with the clarity and the authority that God himself intended. Here's where we need to consider the matter, just as Daniel did. 77s, 70 of these units of seven. The text doesn't really tell us directly whether these units of seven should this be days or years, but the context, the context dictates it must be 70 units of 70 years. Now, some try to say that the units of seven figuratively refers to indefinite periods of time. 
So under this line of thinking, this is 70 units of indefinite periods of time, which is like saying a whole lot of nothing. This does not do any justice to the text. And some try to plug days into this, that this would be 70 units of seven days, which is 490 days. There's no way that the events predicted happened in that period of time, and this would contradict other prophetic sections in the Word of God. Whatever the meaning, it must be in harmony with the totality of God's Word. The only credible option that remains is that the weeks, or sevens, refers to a week of years. Seventy units of seven years, or a total period of 490 years. Back in verse 2, when Daniel was reading Jeremiah and the 70 years of captivity, years were the context, not days, not indefinite amounts of time, years. Today, people tend to think in terms of decades, 10 years at a time. But the people of Israel's day thought in periods of seven years. Now, this isn't something that's coming out of nowhere. This is a concept that is actually quite consistent in the Word of God. Leviticus 25. And Deuteronomy 15, they teach us that the Jews knew the concept of a week of years because of the sabbatical rest for the land that would come about every seven years. Seventy weeks of years, or 70 of these seven-year periods. In our next two studies of Daniel, we're going to take the time to walk carefully through Daniel 9 and break down these periods of years. But for now, notice what we learn in verse 24. Gabriel told Daniel that these 490 years are determined for your people and for your holy city. The words are determined mean to cut off. Follow the significance. God has chosen these 490 years and has cut them off from the rest of history to accomplish his plan for Israel. Don't miss the point here. God has chosen these 490 years and has cut them off from the rest of history to accomplish his plan for Israel. Notice Gabriel told Daniel it was concerning his people and his holy city. Once again, a reference to Jerusalem and to the Hebrew people. This is a prophecy that is focused on the nation of Israel, not the Gentiles and not the church, not even the world at large. 490 years that are set apart for Israel and the holy city. 490 years that would take place when the Jews would be in their own land. And what we have in the rest of verse 24 are six statements of what will be accomplished with the completion of these 490 years. First is to finish the transgression. Finish, bring to an end the rebellion of man. Second is to make an end of sins when the 490 years are done. Israel will no longer be scattered over the earth in rebellion. Israel will no longer live in disobedience to the Lord. The immorality of the nation will come to an end. God will seal up the sins of the Hebrew people. Stop and work your way through this. Is the nation of Israel still in rebellion to God? Yes, absolutely. Is the nation of Israel still in sin? Yes. So the first two statements have not been fulfilled. But notice the next statement, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Reconciliation, pardon, atonement, pointing us directly to the crucifixion of Christ. As Daniel read from the prophet Jeremiah before he prayed, I wonder if he made his way to chapter 50. Listen to Jeremiah 50, verse 20. In those days, and in that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none. 
and the sins of Judah, but they shall not be found. Listen to this next part. For I will pardon those whom I preserve. Gabriel told Daniel God would take care of the sin problem. He would bring to an end the rebellion of Israel. He'd bring an end to their immorality. And he would provide for the forgiveness of sins through the death and resurrection of Christ. But notice now how the last three statements of verse 24 turn towards the righteousness that God wants to restore to the nation of Israel. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Yes, we stand as righteous. We stand as holy before God the Father. But this again refers to the nation of Israel. The fulfillment is yet to come at the second coming of Christ. Everlasting righteousness, Gabriel tells us. Remember how many times in the pages of the Old Testament, Israel turned to God only to turn away again. They turned to God and then turned away. But when verse 24 is fulfilled, it will be once for all. Everlasting righteousness. When the new covenant is fulfilled, Jeremiah 31 teaches that God will write his law on the hearts of his people. Listen to Jeremiah 31. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. During the kingdom of God, established at the second coming of Christ, God will write his law on the hearts and minds of his people. Righteousness will reign among the redeemed. To seal up vision and prophecy in verse 24, breaking down the Hebrew, this refers to the final fulfillment of revelation and prophecy. And the final fulfillment of prophecy can only come about when Christ returns. Now the very last words of verse 24, and to anoint the most holy. Some debate on this, but I think the most likely meaning refers to the future temple, which will be dedicated after these 490 years after the second coming of Christ. The glorious temple of God will be the center of worship during the millennium. With the tabernacle and the temples in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant was set up in the Holy of Holies. But there will be no need for this during the millennium because then the throne of the Messiah will be set up in the sanctuary. Listen to Jeremiah 3. Then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. And no more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. Christ will rule from the temple and the people of the nations will go there to worship him. And so what we have in Daniel 9.24 is an outline of the program of God with the nation of Israel. God will fulfill the unconditional covenants that he has established with his people. The king will come. He will be worshiped in the temple. He will establish his people and end their transgression. Daniel wanted the Hebrew people to be delivered from Babylon, 
to bring to completion the unconditional covenants of God, God responded through his messenger that he must also deliver the people from sin and from the oppression of man, which awaits the second coming of Christ. When Joe Wright was asked to open the new session of the Kansas Senate, everyone was expecting the typical generic prayer that is usually offered in the halls of government. Joe's prayer lasted only a little over 60 seconds, but it enraged many people of the Senate. Listen carefully to his words. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and to seek your direction and guidance. Your word says, woe to those who call evil good. But that is exactly what we have done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium and reversed our values. We confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and called it pluralism. We have endorsed perversion and called it an alternative lifestyle. We have exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We have rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We have killed our unborn and called it choice. We have shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We have neglected to discipline our children and called it building self-esteem. We have abused power and called it politics. We have coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We have polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We have ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. We ask it in the name of your Son, the living Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I love this prayer. It's bold and it's brave, and it reminds me of Daniel's prayer. But let me tell you the difference. Daniel prayed on behalf of God's people, God's nation, Israel. And while we should absolutely pray for our country, that is not to be our primary focus. Pray for the people of God. Pray for the church. Confess our sins because they are many. What our nation needs now more than ever is a healthy church filled with his people, loving Christ, loving his word, and loving his people. Politics will not solve our problems. Not now. Not ever. But Christ can. The church of Christ needs to rise to the occasion. It starts here with us. Confess your sin. Own it before him. Make Christ your first love again and know his forgiveness, know his love, know his grace. Build your faith on the promises of God and be thankful for the cleansing that comes as we seek to walk with him in a desperate and hostile world. The prophetic plan of God shows us that there are dark days ahead. This shouldn't shake us. The peace within, the light of Christ, that should steady our souls knowing that the day will come when at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you're listening to this broadcast online, make sure you don't miss another broadcast by subscribing, either in iTunes 
or whatever platform you're listening on. And if you are listening in iTunes, leave us a review. It helps to let others know that this is a broadcast that is worth listening to. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.